movies, you'll see this commercial. It's great. It's a ter beautiful chicks, man. Fantastic chorus line. The, mo the most beautiful collection of chicks I've ever seen in one chorus line. And uh, they're singing, gimme, 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 gimme that thing, gimme that thing, gimme, gimme, gimme. The whole song is about gimme, 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 gimme that thing. Yeah, 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 gimme that, gimme that, gimme that, gimme that, gimme that thing. And that's all they sing. Well, this is a, a clear statement of the Jackdaw principle. Gimme that thing. <laughs> that's all there is to it. And, uh, and of course, when it, uh, when a uh, true Jackdaw, now this is another part of the Jackdaw complex. Gang, and I'm sure you have it. Of course, the, the great example of the Jackdaw Complex, you ever hear of the Collier Brothers? Yeah, they're famous. The people write about them all the time, the Collier Brothers. Well, we'll leave that for your homework. You can look that up. I'm afraid my mind is still filled with millions of bits of, uh, you know, useless garbage, but this is one of them. And uh, the Collier Brothers were great, great uh, examples of the of the uh, Jackdaw Complex in action and beyond the Call of Duty, totally beyond the Call of Duty. Uh, we'll leave you think about that for a minute. But uh, tonight, I, I thought, it would, you know, it's a good night to do. It's the end of the week, you know, and we've been subjected to a constant rain of, of, uh, of uh, well, I suppose you say, you'd have to say temptation. We're continually tempted, constantly, all, all day long. We're, we're, we walk through our lives being tempted to become jackdaws. Now, some people are, are jackdaws only in one field. Now, for example, there's some people who simply cannot stay out of bookstores. And they buy millions of books until finally their house is one gigantic uh, crate full of millions of unread books. <laughs> now, they might have read them at one time, but they keep them. They have this this terrible urge to just fill her house up with books. It's, it's uncontrollable. And to get rid of any of them is just an awful wrench. And that, incidentally, is part of the Jackdaw Complex, is a mindless defense of the crud you have collected. Mindless. That's the key word. <laughs> you, will, you will defend it to your last breath. Now, now there's another... There's, of course, uh, there are specialists in the Jackdaws, and we, we mentioned the... The, uh, the book cuckoo. Now, one of the worst types of jackdaw today is the clothes jackdaw. Clothing. Because we're in the middle of a fantastic uh, peacock era where uh, where clothing is more important to most people than anything else in their life. You, know, you, you get on to Barney's and it's, it's, a, it's just a sickening scene down there, really. And, oh, yeah, any Saturday, they're, they're like, you know, the average guy who's got about $4 a week to spend extra in his life will spend $9 on clothes, you know. So, so the jackdaw complex is very strong in the clothing area. I've known people who literally had to move out of their apartment because they couldn't get into it anymore. The stuff was just uh, crammed, filled, you know, the, the thousands and thousands and thousands of unworn stuff, you know, the, and you can't get rid of any of it because, you know, one of the dangers of fashion is that any minute now, anything may come back. Oh, yes, I know one guy who made a terrible mistake. Uh, just a few years ago, you know, he was a very square type, and uh, he 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 threw out all of his uh, all of his derby hats and all that kind of stuff, you know, the the squared banker type. And then two weeks afterwards, all that stuff came in, and it's now a derby hat. It's forty five dollars, just you know, down in a head shop in the village. And so he just thrown all that stuff out and invested heavily in vinyl. Well, of course, now vinyl is out. 
and uh, he's looking for uh, you know he's looking for his old uh, derby now, and he's willing to trade four tons of vinyl for it. You know, cut in the shape of vest, shoes, belts, the whole jazz. You know, he didn't have jockey shorts made out of vinyl. Oh yeah, that's that's the exciting. However, the the uh, <laughs> the, the the problem you know is one that uh, you you got to fight against. And uh, speaking of uh, fighting, we have here the devil is rearing its ugly head again. So do we have the general tire thing hit up there? Yeah, if you're thinking about winter tires, friends, <laughs> you jackdaws, think belted gripper. Belted Gripper 780 from General Tire. Oh, listen to Yes, see the experts at your local General Tire store for all the facts on the Belted Gripper 780 winter tire. Designed and engineered to match today's new snow car tires. The Belted Gripper 780 snow tire with polyester cord for strength. Fiberglass belts for mealage and self-cleaning cleats for traction.
was laid bare in a public auction. As the first of some 7,000 people who came to buy and pry, tramped through his ramshackle farmhouse, padded through his orchards and fields thick with booty, one could feel Ernie in the air somewhere, gathering his forces beyond the morning fog. On January 14, 1970, Ernie Simmons, listed in the Ontario Archive simply as Farmer, hacked a last pneumatic cough in the farmhouse room where he was born and died as he lived alone. Calling Ernie Simmons a farmer is like calling Benjamin Franklin an electrician. Simply stated, for 57 years, Ernie was a rustic genius of eerie eccentricity, as miserly as Silas Marner, and a chronicler, a philosopher, a Yankee trader, but above all, a man with a mad penchant for collecting everything from the first Eaton's catalog, that's the, that's the uh, mail order catalog that's big up in Canada, from the first Eaton's catalog to seven Second World War II torpedo bombers. And 35 Harvard training planes. 35 Harvards. Now, do you know what a Harvard is? If you don't know what a Harvard is, it's an AT-6. That's a great big single-engine, uh, two-cockpit, uh, inline training plane. He collected 35 of them. 35. Do you know how many planes are in a squadron, friends? 35, he had 107 motorcycles, dating back to 1917. He had 41 antique cars, 15 brand gun carriers. You know what a gun carrier is? That's one of these big armored <laughs> brand gun carriers. 15, 40 tractors of varying antiquity, and two complete steam engines. And the list goes on. Dan Murray, the auctioneer appointed by the Ontario government when Ernie's relations, whom he hated with a passion, couldn't agree on how to slice up his legacy, started his tongue galloping in the auctioneer's litany yesterday morning. He is going to continue until it's all gone. As far as Ernie was concerned, anyone who came down the mile-long tree-shrouded lane to his clappered house without making his presence loud and clear was bent on, as he put it, thieving. Something Ernie could not and would not suffer. It was many a man, recalled old Henry Fenn yesterday between long puffs on his pipe, the only man who knew Ernie and only from a distance. It was many a man, believe me, that looked down the long barrel of Ernie's shotgun. Harry was one of the very few men whom Ernie called friend. Quote, but beyond... But even then, for 35 years, I never got beyond the front door of his house. He just wouldn't let me in till the day I come in and found him dead. I used to come up, honk loudly. Ernie'd come out to meet me in the car. Never let me in his house. He was as smart as a whip, but God, he was suspicious of everyone. God, I'll tell you, he was suspicious. In the front yard, poised on a green pickup truck with a microphone to his mouth, the auctioneer was gambling through Ernie's 15 handguns set off by 42 rifles and shotguns. The auctioneer paused. Here's one, he chuckled, holding up a long barrel shotgun. Here's the one that Ernie used to dust a few people off with. He was good with this one. Like Sam Peeps, 
three centuries before him, now listen to this, Ernie painstakingly recorded the minutes of his existence. Minute by minute, a daily diary scrawled on a thousand pieces of paper that a reporter found blowing through Ernie's backyard. The diary told of bromides taken, cold pills eaten, cows sold, starlings shot, light bulbs changed, swaps made, breakfasts of bread, milk, and honey. But there was also the stuff of melodrama. For example, here's a quote from Ernie's di diary. August 4th, 1968. Heard heavy thunder, lightning. I got I up reluctantly, clock, 4 a.m., I out veranda to uh, go to backyard, seen pothorse go open on, an easy chair turned over, something going on, suspicious immediately, raining hard, I raise north blind, see two to four fellows loading my, my motorcycles in rear of a late Ford model panel truck, I yell out window, thieves, robbers, I grab Remington 36 pump gun, Racing my sleeping underwear into heavy rain. I yell, halt or I shoot. I fire first shell, second shell. One went to ground. Yell, hey, get out of there. Four more shells and gun. Fire again. Three run down lane. I fired again. End of quote. He disabled their truck. Summoned the police by phone. But all they had to do was mop up. Calling two ambulances to take away two badly wounded motorcycle thieves and their two winged and shaken comrades. I plenty time. He displayed the trading acumen that accumulated the, the trove that yesterday drew 7,000 people. That day, in his diary, he traded an old outboard motor for three antique shotguns that were yesterday auctioned off for several hundred dollars. He sold a motorcycle carburetor, headlamp off another, the bars from yet another for the kind of money that eventually left him with 15000 in bonds in the bank. A lot of people believe that Ernie buried that money somewhere in the orchard. Nobody's found it yet. His diary for that day ends with, I kill, bury two black cats, kittens from North Bedroom, two slices bologna, bread pickles, bed, 2 a.m. Among big government, the big conservative party, the big business, Ernie also did not believe in verbs. <laughs> Dealers are coming from all over the world to buy his Air Force. In a field beyond the apple orchard, an easy shot from the back porch, where Ernie used to rock with his 32 caliber Remington across his knees, sits his phantom squadron. Listen to this. In his, in his back lot, his phantom squadron, row on desolate row, wings lying askew beside them. He's taken all the wings off of them. 36 World War II Harvards. The aircraft that used to hew and polish the young Spitfire pilots who won the Battle of Britain. But the bidding will really heat up when the jewels of his collection go on the block. Listen to this for you airplane cuckoos. The gaunt and ghostly shapes of seven fairy swordfish biplanes. The breed of torpedo bombers launched from the aircraft carrier HMS Ark Royal to hunt down and cripple the German battleship Bismarck. There are probably 15 left in the entire world, mused the dealer and an aircraft expert, and seven of them right here in Ernie's cow pasture. In 1948, Ernie composed an advertising brochure in an attempt to sell the airplanes. 
that he had bought for $50 a piece. He tells how they got to the cow pasture in his diary. I took wings off at airport where I received them. Set tail on my truck, tied wings on side of airplane, towed them home behind my truck. Uh, he was a rascal, said Harry, his friend. He was a rascal. He didn't have a field long enough to take off. So uh, he tied the plane to a tree with a stout rope, revved it up until it was straining into the air, and then he had me cut the rope with an axe. You know, I never did find out where he ever learned to fly if he ever did. That wild sojourn into the blue yonder was his last. The Mounties nailed him. <laughs> and the Canadian FAA slapped him with a heavy fine. From that day onward, any plane that circled over his field, anyone flying over and seeing that ghost squadron below, would uh, have a double take and undoubtedly a double look. Any plane that flied over was in his mind, just the spying Mounties. At one point in his diary, he even records the belief that, quote, they were bugging his door. As was his want, at that point he fired off a letter to the Mounties. In 1946, the Mounties, I understand, requested and had law changed from $10 to $50 fine for flying an airplane without a pilot's license. The Mounties had used thousands, perhaps millions of gallons of gasoline, watching me that I do not have any pleasure flying my airplanes. He thought they were spying on him, flying over him. Ernie lived alone with his mother and his father. His diary recounts his father's slow death. Slow death. They all died of pneumonia. One gets the impression from the diary that Ernie liked children, as did W.C. Fields, boiled. In one tumultuous release yesterday, several hundred kids swarmed through the nook of every Bren gun carrier and the cranny of every antique car while thousands of their elders crowded Ernie's furniture, fingered his papers, sized up his cars, stole his tools, and in one final thrust of desecration, clustered around a huckster's stand, set up beside his tool shed, and ate 1,200 hamburgers and as many hot dogs, washing them down with 6,000 Cokes as they tramped around his inviolate ground. Said a mauve-eyed girl, a mauve-eyed girl with a faraway look. This place gives off strange vibrations. And in the azure sky beyond the morning fog, one could almost hear a squadron of Harvards, old AT-6s flanked by seven torpedo bombers thundering down from the sun, all guns cocked for a blazing run at the maddening crowd below. Then, and only then, his perturbed spirit might rest. Now, they, they have a little note at the bottom that says a further report on Ernie's treasure will appear tomorrow. Do you want to hear the next report on it? Isn't that fantastic? When there's a guy, you know, I just had to say something about this guy. <laughs> here, here it is. Now, here's the second report. This reporter went out and saw it a second day, you know. It's, uh, again, Dateline, Tillensburg, Ontario. And he starts out by saying it's Brian McKenna. And uh, the headline is, Now the bikes Ernie battled for have gone under the hammer. They sold Ernie's motorcycles yesterday. He loved them with the passion of an easy rider, but there was one difference. Ernie owned 140 of them. Ernie Simmons was a man whose extraordinary eccentricity is fast becoming legend in this area deep in the heart of Ontario's tobacco belt near London. Since Thursday last, a mammoth auction has been underway on the 175-acre farm where he lived and died last January. 
Arnie collected things. Thursday, they hammered down his antique cars and gun collection and a lot of just plain junk. Today, they're selling his phantom fleet of second World War torpedo bombers and trainers. And yesterday, they sold his bikes. Hauling them out of the sprawling greenhouse where Ernie kept them, the auctioneer arrayed them in a line a hundred yards long, right in the middle of a cow pasture. I'd say about 30 or 40 of the best of them were stolen when Ernie was in the hospital last Christmas, said Harry Fenn, one of the few men Ernie called friend. Amid the yellowed pages of the diary that Ernie carefully kept are descriptions of his dreams. One nightmare recurred frequently. Quote, October, 47, dream, bad dream. Thieves come to steal cycles, tried to fight and could not move. How's that for a dream? He kept dreaming they were stealing and stuff. Ernie moved swiftly through one night in 1968. At the height of a savage thunderstorm, he charged out in his pajamas and pumped bullets into four thieves, stealing his cycles. They were in the hospital for many months. Although they'll never be sure, it might have been some of the same men who returned last December when Ernie was taken to the hospital. As was his wont, Ernie had risen early, breakfasted, breakfasted on three eggs and pickles, and then headed out into the yard to cut wood for the big stove in his kitchen. His father had died years before, and now his mother was slipping away too. But she wouldn't leave the farm. Matter of fact, she'd only left the farm once in 25 years, and that was to sign up for her old age pension. The whine of his big buzzsaw must have drowned out all sound in the yard. But Ernie had a sixth sense about strangers on his land. He turned around when he was cutting wood to face four masked men. The biggest was using was holding a 22 caliber revolver. Ernie kept a dozen double barrel shotguns in the house for just such an emergency. The fact that they had him cold did nothing to intimidate Ernie. He was about halfway to the door when the first bullet ripped into his back. And then another shot reverberated across the lonely farm. And then another, and another, until blood was oozing and trickling from seven different wounds. But he was still conscious. He felt their hands searching his body for cash. Like many in this rustic community, these men had heard stories of Miser Simmons and the money he must have hidden in that old house, and they wanted it. The men dragged his now unconscious body inside. Remember, he was shot seven times. They tied up his mother. Before they left, frustrated with but $175, the thieves ripped the telephone out of the wall. Ernie was down, but not dead. He slipped back to consciousness and crawled back to the phone. Undeterred by the broken wire, he meticulously spliced the line back together and called the police. He was rushed to the hospital for a series of delicate operations. Doctors managed to reach two of the most dangerous bullets in his back, but they decided he would have to carry the other five with him the rest of his life. Every man should carry 22 bullets around with him, Ernie joked to his friend. Yep, I'm fun of, I'm just full of 22 slugs. The men from the province of Ontario came for Ernie's mother. She was installed in an old age home, and within a month she died. Ernie knew that with no one guarding the farm that the thieves would descend. They did. We'll never know what they took, said auctioneer Dan Murray, but we do know they stole an awful lot. The doctors were dead against it, but no amount of logic and persuasion would keep Ernie from returning to his troll. He was crazy to go back there. There was no heat in that house. 
said Harry. But he set himself up in bed with some coal oil heaters around his little room. He kept a loaded shotgun within reach. Five days after Ernie left the hospital, his friend Harry rang him up to see how things were. Well, when he didn't answer, I knew what I would find. But I had to go anyhow. Me and my son took the snowmobile. It was the only way to get in. When I found him, he'd been dead about 18 hours with them heaters going full blast. At 58, he had died of pneumonia. Thousands came to see the remains of Ernie's great collection yesterday. He was a collector of junk and antiquity. Vintage motorcycle collectors came from all over the country to paw over the rusting frames of World War I Harleys, Indians, Royal Enfields, a rare matchless, and others that ferried leather-helmeted dispatch riders through the dark roads of two world wars. Some were only rusting frames. Others still had their big, dusty fenders hung with canvas saddlebags. On January 20th, 1938, Ernie wrote this letter <coughs> to the inspector in charge of motorcycle patrol, Ontario Police. I read in the newspaper that the province was taking on more motorcycle policemen, and I was wishing to draw attention that I have sent in applications June 1934 and August 1937. I would still like that position. I believe that I could fill that position very satisfactorily and could furnish names and addresses of prominent people who I'm sure would think the same. Since finishing school in 27, I'd spent all my time with motorcycles, cars, aircraft, and marine odors. I have owned, driven, and repaired all American types and model motorcycles and several British makes have driven them over 150,000 miles. I can tell the make and model of four out of five cars at the distance of 600 feet up to 80 miles per hour. Mechanical engineer and mechanic do not smoke or drink, have not been charged with any offense. Height, six feet, in stocking feet, weight 185 pounds, and I would furnish my own suitable motorcycle from my collection. There was no record of whether he was answered by the police. Instead, the course of his life ticked on, just ticked on, like the entries in his ledgers. Anyone who tried to bargain with Ernie can recall to this day how his cobra eyes would intimidate them, how unblinking his price remained. Others will tell you bitterly that his dealing was laced with all the guile and craft of an oriental flea market merchant. Well, he would sell a bike at a stiff price, the fellas run a run it home, take it home, everything could run smooth for a couple of days, and then strange sounds would start coming out of the engine, one of his neighbors said. Sometimes the fellow would find out that the pistons were made out of wood, or the carburetor was made out of an old tin can. It would work fine for a couple of days, and then bang, Ernie then would tell, tell him he'd sell him parts for the machine for almost the same price that the guy paid for it. His papers and diaries give little hint of this side of Ernie, if in fact it did exist. From his diary, we get the portrait of a man who would stay up all night to nurse a sick dog or one of his many cats back to health. He knew their every mood. He knew if it was, as he put it, spooky night or grieving night. But there is no doubt he was kin to those thousands who turn inward with their pets while bristling a cactus attitude towards human beings. Over the flying years, Ernie... Over the flying years, Ernie found good reason for doing so. Quote, no sleep last night. Fear, night raiders, records his diary endless times over. Morning after morning, year after year, 
he would awake to find something gone or smashed or potted with a BB gun. And so to the very end, he preferred his fellow man at the other end of a 12-gauge shotgun. Now, what do you think of that? Ernie Simmons. <laughs> Isn't that fantastic? I mean, that, that to me is a, is, a, is a fantastic story. And uh, it, has, it has incredible ramifications. I mean, psychological in every other way. The mother and the whole business, you know. The mother loved it, never leaving the farm, keeping a, a meticulous diary, and uh, the, 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 the alarms and the shots in the night. Did you ever see a movie called Psycho? You, you, you notice the, 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 slight, uh, uh, <laughs> the, the, the slight similarity there? But the idea of collecting 35 AT6s and here are pictures, fantastic pictures. I wish I could show them to you. The, but <clears throat> the paper has a picture of one of his bombers. This is one of the very rare bombers. This is one of the... In fact, uh, this, this bomber, I, I read one, uh, one account, uh, the swordfish, the fairy swordfish. That's F-A-I-R-E-Y, fairy. The Fairy Aircraft Corporation built it. And the swordfish was, was uh, the 1930s British... Uh, transport. They were, well, it was not it was a transport. It was a it was a shipborne bomber with a forerunner to the torpedo bombers that came later. But they're very very rare, and people have been looking all over the world for for uh, numbers models of these things. And here he had seven of them. That's a huge bomber. Look at the size of that thing. That's not a little airplane. That's a huge airplane. And he had seven of those uh, sitting in his backyard, and he took the wings off. And towed them back and put them in his yard, and that's it. That's where they stayed. Now, what fantastic urge went on in this guy's head to collect these bombers? Well, I'll tell you what it is. Think about it for a minute. Think of it. Now, and really, seriously, without, without, uh, without any uh, bias, think about it for a minute. Haven't you seriously wanted to have a... You know, don't, don't airplanes intrigue you? Even as a kid, you'd, you'd like to look at them and climb over them. And, and uh, the idea of, of owning a big airplane like that, it's a, it's, a, it's a subtle thing. Now, some people, of course, never, never even think of the possibility of ever owning one. But here's a guy who actually went out and, and operated and did these things. He went out and did it. And he went out and bought them. I remember a few years ago, I remember, in fact, reading it on this show, very interesting little piece. Uh, you know on the back pages of the Times, of the Sunday Times, where they have all this stuff like surplus junk and, you know, all of the silly page of the Times, you know. You can buy radios in the shape of uh, footballs and all that jazz. You've seen that page, and it's, just, it's in the Sunday issue, right? Well, one Sunday, and it only appeared one Sunday, there's a little ad. And it was, a, it was a government ad, a little ad about three, three inches by two inches. And the ad said that they were selling in Pensacola, Florida. They had, they didn't even, I, I don't remember where they specified the number, but it seemed to be hundreds. It just, they were selling F6F 
carrier-borne aircraft. And there were two prices. Uh, one price was that if you wanted if you wanted the airplane with the electronics removed, in other words, the navigation aids removed, all flyable, by the way. Uh, the other the other condition was that if you wanted them with the equipment in. Now, the airplane sold with with equipment in it for twelve hundred dollars, and it said that you fly it away. It says fly away the field there. In other words, you have to come down, uh, show them that you have a pilot's license probably be taken up for a check ride. You pay your 1200 and you fly away with an F-6F. <laughs> and I, I read that on the air. And it wasn't that long ago, you see. And I, I read this thing on the air, and I just thought, you know, what, a, what an urge. It's so, a fantastic urge to go down and buy a, a, a big fighter plane. You know, an F-6F is a, is a is this big Grumman fighter. You know, the gull-wing Grumman. It's a beautiful airplane. But they were selling them for $1,200. I, I one time... Uh, I one time went, I went to a, uh, a surplus auction, and, uh, you know, you have to restrain yourself. If you've ever gone down to Florida, one of the most interesting, and you see it on the, the boardwalk in Atlantic City, there's, there's thousands of little auction places in places like Miami and in Fort Lauderdale, and you see all these ladies with silver hair sitting in there night after night bidding on the most unimaginable junk. Have you seen those things? This curious... Uh, Mid-Victorian objet d'art they're always buying. <laughs> you know, uh, fawns holding up a lampshade, that kind of stuff. And this is part of the jackdaw syndrome. These ladies don't need lamps. But getting a lamp is important. Bidding on a lamp. And I was at this great auction one day, and you know what I almost bought? It was uh, I had a practical restrain myself. I could have gotten, you're looking at a guy that almost bought for $350, a Mark VI General Sherman tank. <laughs> the plan, it was in running condition. And they had... <laughs> I'm serious. Now, now, this wasn't that long ago either. That, oh, how much was it? 350 bucks. It probably would have cost that to get the damn thing started. I mean, you know what kind of gas they burned. Yeah, I can see me with those, you know, those 400 horsepower engines, you know, running as high test gas. But there it was, the whole thing sitting there, and and it was, it was a row. There was a row of them. There were about six of them in a row, see. And they were going for 350 bucks a clip. And I had a terrible urge. It's a 350 bucks. Hell, I can afford that. You know, I almost bought one of them. And, and uh, yeah, they, why didn't I? I don't know why. I'm sorry now. I would like to, you know, what a what a fantastic sports car. I could write a, did you see me writing the, uh, the, <laughs> the, uh, the driver's evaluation for car and driver, you know? Pick up uh, five-inch armor plate, the whole bit, see? And speed of turret revolution. And uh, this thing, yeah, they all worked. And, and the, the, the guy that was demonstrating him, you know, the... the there was a GI there that was demonstrating this stuff worked. See, it was a it was a big field outside of Cincinnati where all this stuff was on sale. And he's in there, big cloud of blue smoke, and he revolves the turret, show you the turret work, and he drove it forward and reversed, got the next one and did the same thing. And there was a kind of a nice one, the second one from the left. Just got a kind of friendly look. I mean, you know, it looked like my tank, you know. <laughs> And they're buying it. So we all know this urge. Oh, sure. 
mean, you know, it's a, it's a t you know, I know a guy who once bid, and I'm serious, I know a guy who bid on the Queen Elizabeth. He really did. Came down near getting it, too. <laughs> Which would have ruined him if he did it. <laughs> but, oh, that's a terrible urge. Jack on. Don't forget, Princeton now, that book side is between 3 and 6 tomorrow. You'll be honest.